Welcome to In Conversation With, a podcast from the Lancet of Spiritual Medicine. I'm Gavin Cleaver. It's January 2023. I'm very pleased to be guest hosting this episode for the Lancet of Spiritual Medicine. You might know me from hosting the Lancet Voice, and I'm just getting a plug in there up front, Emma, so don't worry about that. I'm very pleased to be joined by the Editor-in-Chief of the Lancet of Spiritual Medicine, Emma Granger, to talk about the January issue. Usually, Emma, we're talking about a specific piece of content in the issue, but today we're talking about the whole issue. So why is that? Yeah, thank you, Gavin, for speaking with me today. So the issue that we, we're currently publishing, the January issue of the journal, will kick off a really special year for us. It's 10 years since we launched the journal. So time's certainly flown by, and uh, we wanted to thank the community for the warm welcome that we received. Um, we really had such positive support from the journal from day one. So for this first issue of our anniversary year, we're publishing a series on digital health in interstitial lung diseases. The series will consist of two review papers. We have one published in our journal on home monitoring of ILDs and the other paper published in the Lancet Digital Health will be on the potential of machine learning in image biomarker research and that's to advance screening diagnosis and the monitoring of treatment response. Alongside that, we'll have two accompanying link comments and an author profile. And all of these pieces will be collated together on a series page. And we launched that earlier this week on uh, December 12th. So added to that this month, we're also publishing our news and views. And we've got several research papers. And these are on topics as diverse as COVID-19, rheumatoid arthritis, lung disease, IPF, lung cancer, influenza and asthma. And I think that really reflects the scope and breadth of the content we cover in the journal. We've also got some news pieces this month, and they'll be discussing research presented at recent meetings that we attended. So from the Gold Meeting in November and from the Critical Care SQM meeting in October. And it's been really good to go to some of these meetings in person again this year after such a long gap. Really exciting to talk and, and meet up and chat with experts in the field. Yeah, so big issue plan and obviously a big anniversary, the 10th anniversary. Any other kind of big anniversary plans? Yeah, we've got um, some other plans for additional content this year to celebrate our anniversary. So in our January issue, we had the first of our anniversary roundups. And this is from Drs. Co and Drs. Fleming, um, who will discuss the progress made in asthma care over the past decade. And we'll be publishing these reflective comment pieces from thought leaders around the world throughout the year. These will be in key areas of respiratory medicine and critical care. We'll also run a profile of Dr. Co in the January issue, and we'll continue to publish these profiles of our anniversary roundup authors throughout the year. We've hidden a 10 in our January issue cover, so we hope that the readers will enjoy looking for that, and we'll be hiding a 10 in every cover image during the year. We'll also revisit some topics that we reviewed in our first volume in 2013, and we'll publish throughout the year forward-looking reviews in these and other areas. So 10 years is pretty much always a very long time in, in research in a particular field. So what are some of the changes that you've really noticed over the last decade in respiratory medicine? Well, research efforts are constantly evolving. In recent times, we've seen these efforts evolving to try and address health disparities. We saw these disparities were really magnified during the pandemic. That's in terms of the populations affected, the access to treatments, and, and, and of course, vaccine equity. So the COVID-19 really shone a spotlight on the need for more diverse patient populations to be included in studies, and also for more collaborative research between geographical regions. I still think, though, that there's a, a very long way to go in any efforts that are being made here. 
Uh, we also saw during the pandemic some changes in trial design, such as the use of the large platform trials. What about some of the kind of key areas of development? What's changed there? The one area that um, has changed is the focus on the patient, and that's to ensure that they're integrated more into care pathways and the patient-centred outcomes are incorporated into research. So we also have a number of patient pieces in the current issue. And this is an area that has been recognised. It's really important to consider the patient's feedback and, and input to central to any developments and proposed changes into healthcare delivery. So a few years ago, we took the decision to launch patient perspectives in order to ensure that the patient's voice is heard. And it's quite rightly now becoming routine to involve patients in the authorship of published papers, such as the reviews and uh, personal views that we publish, as well as in guideline development. We've also, in the journal in recent times, recorded patient podcasts, because, um, of course, what's important for the patient can, of course, be very different to what's considered important by the treating physician. So patients should be central in setting future priorities, and that's both in setting research priorities and in the design of original research studies. Looking back as the editor-in-chief, are there any kind of key papers or advances that really stick out for you? Well, there's so many highlights over the years, you know, a decade worth of research. Um, we published a number of commissions, uh, so on household air pollution, cystic fibrosis, COPD and TB. And these are really big bodies of work that we hope will and have changed policy and practice. They're important because they push often neglected questions or areas into political agendas. But we've also seen many advances in treatment and care over the past decade some of which we've published in the Lancet Respiratory Medicine and some have been published elsewhere. So, for example, the CFTR modulators have changed the treatment landscape for patients with cystic fibrosis, substantially improving their median survival. And we now have a triple therapy for this group of patients, um, but it's only in selected groups according to their mutation status. The modulators have been so successful that we recently published a trial that looked at de-escalation of treatments for CF. Um, the treatment burden in terms of the number of therapies that these patients have to take is is really high. Yeah. So we've seen personalised medicine, for example, become a buzzword for many lung diseases, uh, driving much of the research and treatment efforts. There's been a large body of work published in respiratory journals for such personalised efforts in lung diseases, such as asthma and COPD. But we've also seen this in the critical care journals, that similar efforts have been made in patients with sepsis or ALDS. We see new techniques, so latent class analysis can help in this respect to partition patients into groups. And in this way, uh, subgroups have been uncovered that might respond to treatment when therapies have been ineffective in the patient group overall. So this personalization of phenotyping of patients into these groups with similar biological characteristics, that's really been a result of the learnings that we've taken from the oncology field. In IPF, idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis, we've seen groundbreaking disease-slowing therapies. Uh, they've been approved for patients with a disease that's got a really poor prognosis. Lung cancer, it's still unfortunately a common cancer and still got a poor prognosis. But some patient groups have shown improved survival following the use of ALK inhibitors, for example. But as with all these advances, it's really important to, to consider those patients that are left behind and still in need of effective treatments. Lung transplantation is another area that we've seen great advances. Uh, the application of new techniques such as EVLP, which is ex vivo lung perfusion, and the use of cardiac death donors. Both of these have widened and increased donor pools. So there's been changes in their consent systems in some countries. Uh, so they're moving to an opt-out system. So this is where 
patients have to opt out of not um, being donors rather than an opt-in system. So this has increased the still scarce number of donor lungs. The ER has held a really nice debate in this area earlier this month, which can be found on their respiratory channel. So I could go on for much, much longer, um, and this podcast would be way too long then. But from my perspective, I thoroughly enjoy reading all the new research that comes in and learn something new almost every day. I still get that excitement when a paper comes in that I think could potentially change clinical practice. And my job, and that of my team's, is to shape the paper through a robust peer review process um, and through sub-editing in order to ensure that the information is communicated in the most effective way. So it's a privilege being an editor of a journal that's, you know, being entrusted with the important work of others. I think we know what you're going to say to this one, but, you know, what's been the biggest challenge for a respiratory medicine journal like yours over the last few years? Yeah, well, no no surprises to anyone. Our biggest challenge has been in recent years, um, the COVID-19 pandemic. So we saw a huge rise in the number of submissions to the journal during this time. So in 2020, we had three to four times the level of submissions that we saw in 2019. So the first year of the pandemic particularly was a very steep learning curve. We needed to balance speed as this was really important to get the content out as quickly as possible. But we had to balance that with quality and also with the aim to be a trusted source of information. I mean, it was a time of great uncertainty, I think. We peer-reviewed more content than ever before. So comments and letters, for example, we don't routinely send these out for external peer review. uh, But we were sending many of these pieces out to external experts. And given a lot of our reviewers were very much at the forefront of the pandemic efforts, I was really humbled and surprised that so many helped guide us during this difficult time. They were also authors of the crucial content that helped shape the pandemic response. And I really don't know how our communities managed to do this. Well, I I mean, I don't know how you managed to do it with that fourfold increase in, in papers across the pandemic. What kind of extra challenges did that pose? We, we actually did have a lot of help um, within the LARCIC group to kind of cope with, with the avalanche of content because uh, some journals were more affected than others. Um, and a lot of our colleagues and the, the slightly less affected journals did help us out during that time. Some of the other challenges uh, were that we saw our content was being viewed in a different way to previously. So, for example, um, more of the general public were accessing our content. It was a new disease, so there was an information vacuum. We did lots of communications around this, um, around our different journal paper types, whether the content was peer-reviewed or not. Uh, This might not be immediately obvious to a layperson. And also the level of evidence of a particular piece of content. So a letter is very different, for example, from a full article. We work with our communications and press teams very closely to ensure any messaging was balanced and appropriate, as well as, of course, working with our authors during the peer-review and sub-editing process to ensure that all content was appropriately framed. We learned a lot along the way, but I hope that the journal helped provide information that the community could use to save lives. And I cannot thank our authors and reviewers enough for their help during this time. Help, which I have to say, continues to this day. Um, In many countries, the pandemic is, of course, not over. Thanks, Emma. Yeah, it's it's an absolutely remarkable story. Mm. Any any final thoughts on this uh, 10th anniversary issue? Um, No, just again, to really thank all our authors, reviewers and readers, past, present and future. You know, without them, we wouldn't have a journal. Um, And we just hope that you enjoy reading the next decade of our journal's content and voice. Always welcome any feedback. And thank you very much, Gavin, for talking to me today.
Well, thanks so much for chatting with me. And here's to another 10 years, right? Um, <laughs> thanks to our listeners for joining us. And we'll see you again on the Last of Us Patreon throughout 2023. Take care.